Before we jump into Genesis chapter 46 this morning, I want to go back and look at the last two verses of Genesis chapter 45. We, we went through that chapter last week, um, but there was two verses that I didn't get to spend a, an appropriate amount of time that I wanted us to look at before we jump ahead into chapter 46. So if you look at, look at with me, Genesis chapter 45, the, the last two verses, verses 27 and 28, this is what it says. But when they had told him, meaning Jacob, all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their the father Jacob revived. And Israel said this phrase, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. When you read those last two verses, what is it that comes to mind in the New Testament? Is there another New Testament character that you think of that said something similar to that? It's a foreshadowing of, of a man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon had received a promise from the Lord that he would not die before he would hold the Lord's Messiah in his hands. And in Luke chapter 2, as Joseph and Mary, as they make their way into the temple, Simeon is there and he holds Jesus in his hands. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 2. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And that's exactly what Jacob says in his final years of life. He has about 17 years left after this happens. But he's saying, it is enough. And it just makes me wonder, how often do we hesitate? Sometimes we almost choke on our words before we say that phrase, it's enough, and mean it in a positive way, right? We're quick to say, it's enough, to throw our hands up in the air and say, I can't take it anymore. God, it's enough. I can't do one more thing. But how often do we hesitate to ever say, it's enough, and mean that, God, everything you've done for me, all that I have right now, Lord, if you don't do one more thing for me, it is enough. How often do we ever reach that place on this journey of life where we're truly content, where we're truly satisfied with what God has done for us. And I don't want this to simply be a, a rhetorical question that we throw out and then we move on, but would we wrestle with that this week? God, what's it going to take for me to be satisfied? What's it going to take for me to be content? Here Jacob is in his older years of life, and he's saying, it's enough. And I, I happen to know and believe that as we get older in life, that sometimes we adjust our goals. Is that a nice way to say it? Uh, we want to make sure they're attainable. We want to make sure that it's something that we don't fall short of. So in order to, to make sure that we don't fail at some of these goals that we've had in life, maybe we'll tweak them, we'll adjust them so that we can attain them. But, but even as we progress in life, we we still kind of hold out hope that maybe there's something else out there that if I can just get to this stage, if I can just accomplish this, if this just happens, then I'll finally be happy. Then I'll finally be content with what is happening in life. Rarely do we get to the stage in life where we can with open hands say, God, it's enough. 
And yet that's exactly what Jacob says at the end of chapter 45. I've just received the best news in the world that I could have received. My son, whom I thought was dead, is alive and God, it is enough. It reminds me of another story in the New Testament of a father and a son. Many times it's referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. I, along with many um, biblical scholars that are much more intelligent than me, think that it's uh, misappropriately titled that. When we call it the parable of the prodigal son, the emphasis really is on the son. And we look at his mistakes and how he came back to the father. But I don't think the emphasis of that story is on the sinful son. Instead, it should be on that faithful father who loved his son, even in the midst of his rebellion, even in the midst of his son. And of course, when we have his sin, we know that father represents God and the son represents us. And even in our rebellion, remember what happens that son, after he'd squandered all of his father's inheritance that he receives, he wants to come back and he says, I'll just be a hired hand. If that's all, that'll be enough. And he walks back and I have to believe that his head was hanging low, that his shoulders were heavy with guilt. And Scripture tells us that when his father sees him from a long way off, what does he do? He runs to his son. He throws his arms wide open. He wraps his arms around his son. And then he throws an elaborate party. It had to be an expensive banquet for him. In fact, it's so elaborate, it's so expensive that his older brother gets jealous and said, how in the world could you throw this party for your son after all that he did against you? And the father looks at him and says, don't you understand? My son was dead, but now he's alive. That's what's happened to Jacob here. And Jacob says, it's enough. It's enough. Now let me go at once and go and see him. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in chapter 46. Let's look at the first two verses of Genesis chapter 46. It says, so Israel took his journey with all that he had. Of course, remember Israel and Jacob, the same person, with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Now let me pause there for a moment. There's something interesting here in that text. What we gather from that text is that as soon as Jacob hears or he discovers that his son, who he thought was dead, is still alive, he says, I must go at once. Nothing's going to stop me. Before I can die in peace, I must go and see Joseph one more time. So he packs up all his things and he begins to go on his way to Egypt. He gets as far as Beersheba and there he offers a sacrifice to God. But there's something interesting in that conversation that Jacob has there between him and God. You kind of have to read between the lines. You have to kind of go between the verses and understand what's going on there. When you understand that, what you'll see there is Jacob seems to get a little nervous before he crosses the border to go into Egypt. You and I probably would have been the same way, right? Remember, his sons for over 20 years had lied to him about Joseph being dead, and now he's about to cross over into enemy territory. He's about to go into Egypt, and he had been told by God, this is where I'm going to bless you. Stay, and this is the promised land. And so now, towards the end of his life, he's about to leave the safety, security of home, and now he's about to cross into Egypt. See, Jacob, he offers this sacrifice at Beersheba. Now, this wasn't probably a sacrifice of burnt offerings. 
More than likely, this was a sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving. He would have made a vow before God that he was going to to follow him wherever the Lord leads him. But then you have to understand also that Jacob knew this city very well. This was part of his his hometown here. It It was there at Bethel that God made himself known to Jacob. Many years ago, before this moment occurs, he had a dream, and many of you remember that dream as Jacob's ladder. Remember that dream? There was this ladder that bridged the gap between heaven and earth, and there were angels that were ascending and descending from this ladder. And as he woke up from this dream, it says that he was terrified, that he was trembling. He was in awe of what happened. And he says this in in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. See, God had revealed himself to Jacob. He had promised Jacob that wherever he went, that God was going to travel with him, that God would always be with him. But Before we're too harsh on Jacob, let's understand that, yes, he was a godly man who tried to follow the Lord. He had failures just as you and I do. But at the same time, we have to understand that he lived in the flesh much of his life. So often he would forget this promise that God had told him that he would be with him. And and there were times that he said, I'd rather die than to continue on in this journey of life. That's what he said when Joseph was taken away from him. He says it again when at first Simeon is gone and then Benjamin is gone. And remember, they have to go back and get him. That's why they go to Egypt. And he said, I would rather die than to continue on in this journey because even in the flesh, he forgot this promise that God had made that I will always be with you. I will always follow you. So now God appears to him a second time in another dream. The saying, he's promising the same thing that he promised his grandfather Abraham. But notice, how does God refer to him this time? He doesn't just say Jacob. He says his name twice. Jacob. Jacob. There's 15 or so occurrences in the Bible in which God refers to someone by calling their name twice, back to back. You remember at Mount Moriah when Abraham was about to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. He's holding the knife above him. Isaac is on the altar. And before he commits the sacrifice, God calls out to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God calls Samuel when Samuel's under the care of Eli. And in the middle of the night, he receives this vision. And this is how Samuel says, and the Lord came and stood calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. King David, when he received the terrible news that his son had been killed, this is how he, re- he responds. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The prophet Elijah, you remember, was carried away in a chariot of fire. And when that happened, his his disciple, um, Elisha, was there. And when this occurs, Elisha cries out, says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Jesus in the New Testament as well. When Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter says, Jesus, there's no way that I will ever um, deny you. I will always be with you. This is what, what he says to Simon Peter. Simon Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Saul, when he's on the road to Damascus, do you remember there was this bright light that shined uh, on him? And when he's on that road, this voice cries out to him in a Hebrew voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me. But perhaps the most moving use of all of these cases was when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament where someone refers to a name back to back and it's used twice, it's a Hebrew device signifying that there's a personal or a deep intimacy with that person. That's why on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking to the people, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, he says it twice. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do, not, and do many mighty works in your name? These people, they pretended not only to, to know who Jesus was, they pretended to have this intimacy with him, that they would follow him wherever he went. Jesus calls them out in the next verse, says, listen, here's what you're going to do on the last day. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So why is it important? Why did we just take the last five minutes to go through these examples of when a person's name is referred back to back? It's because whenever someone, their name is referred back to back, there's a sense of intimacy. And so here we have Jacob, go back to 46. He is fearful. He's facing this time of uncertainty. I'm not sure what, if I can go through with this. I know you told me to go to Egypt, but I'm just so fearful. And during this time of fear and uncertainty, God speaks to him with this personal response. God says, Jacob, Jacob. And, God, and Jacob responds, here I am. And watch what God says. I am am God. Does that not bring to remembrance last Sunday when we read from chapter 45 when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers? What does he say? I am Joseph. But now there is one much greater than Joseph and he's speaking to Jacob and he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Once again, God renews this covenant promise that he makes, this, this, this pledge that he says, listen, I will be with you in all of your traveling, even into Egypt. Verses five through seven, then Jacob set out from Beersheba the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring was with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Notice that in that passage, in the passage before there, that God gives Jacob four reasons why he should not fear as he's traveling into Egypt. Let me share with you the four. They're right there in, in Scripture. We see the first one in verse 3. He says, don't fear, for there I will make you into what? A great nation. This is the same promise that God had originally given 
to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I just have to believe that there's no way in the world that Abraham nor Jacob thought that this great family, this great nation would live, would form, and would spend much of their time in Egypt of all places. And if that's not enough, then he goes on and he says in verse 4, God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Jacob, just as I have been with you in Canaan, I promise you, I am going to journey with you. I will go with you into Egypt. There is no need to fear. Third reason. He says, and I will also bring you up again. One of Jacob's final requests that he makes of his son, and we're going to read about it next Sunday as we wrap up this series on Joseph, is, hey, well, make sure that I want to be buried here in Canaan. And Joseph is going to honor that request. And fourth and final, the reason you should not fear, he says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God promises Jacob that your son, that you love so much, Joseph, that he will be with you when you close your eyes for the final time, when you leave this earth, Joseph will gently close your eyes. What follows in the next section of chapter 46 is a long list of names of all those people who, who journeyed with Jacob into um, Egypt. We're going to skip the list of those names, and I want you to go to verse 26. It says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Isn't that an interesting description? It wasn't just a, an emotional embrace. It wasn't just a hug. It says that he went and he fell on his dad's neck, that he began to weep on his neck. What do you say after all these years, after all these years of missing your father so much? All that scripture says is that he clung to his neck and he could not let go. That he begins to weep and he begins to cry and he cannot stop crying. And then Jacob says this to Joseph, verse 30. Now let me die. Let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Through all of this time in slavery, through all of this time living in a foreign land, all this time living in prison, all of the, the loneliness that Joseph had experienced for all of this time, now his greatest dream had finally been fulfilled. He is hugging and weeping and holding on to his father. The same experience had happened to Jacob, a little bit differently, but Jacob also had this, this sense of loneliness, this sense of grief, this sense of bitterness of his soul. His greatest dream had just been realized as well as he is holding and clinging on to his son. The father saw his son. The son saw his father and friends, it was enough. It was enough for Jacob. 
And it was enough for Joseph. And I go back to the question that I started with a few moments ago. It's more than just a rhetorical question. What will it take for us to finally say, I'm happy? When will we ever say, I'm satisfied with what I've been given? Will there ever be a time in our life where we say, I am content? See, I grew up the the baby of the family. I have an older brother. He's four and a half years older, which means he always got to do everything before I did. So I would watch him, and I remember when he was older than, well, when he was older, he was always older, um, when he was older than me, he was playing baseball. And I thought, man, when I get to that stage that I can play baseball, then I'm going to be happy. Then he turned 16, he got to drive. Oh, man, when I can drive like that, when I get a car, when I'm, then I'll be happy. Then he graduated from high school, got all these gifts, had all these parties. Man, when I graduate from high school, that's when I'm really going to be happy. You know how the story goes, don't you? When I go to college, I'm going to be happy. When I get out of college, that's when I'm going to be happy. When I get married, when I get a job, when I have kids, when I get a house, when I get that promotion, then I'm finally going to be happy. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be happy. And so on and so on. And milestones come and milestones go in our life. And yet we still aren't satisfied. Friends, what I've discovered is that apart from the sweetness of the relationship that we have with our Savior. For those of us in this room who have trusted Christ as our Savior, that is the best thing in our life. But apart from that, what I've discovered is there is no greater satisfaction that we will experience on this side of eternity than the love that we experience from our children and the love that our children experience from us. Again, I know this from example, as Lindsay and I have been at times, maybe yesterday, at our wit's end with our kids. They can be just driving us crazy. Last night at bedtime, a good example. I'm not going to go into it. And then out of nowhere, mommy, daddy, I love you. Great. Just when I was getting ready to give you a spanking. They know right when to say that, don't they? It just doesn't get any better than that. And then to hear the love from your children, I, I hear that's the case until you become grandparents. I hear there's one more stage, but we're not there quite yet. But you know, when we experience that love from our children, it far surpasses any amount of material possessions that we'll ever gain. It far surpasses any amount of achievement that we will ever gain in our life. It's the deepest level of love that exists. And that's what we've just experienced here in Genesis chapter 46. Now, if you'll give me two minutes to pull the curtain back for you and share with you a little bit about what my life was like this week and many of your lives were like this week. I finished this message Monday about two o'clock. A little after three, Vicki Alway and Susie Baggett come into my office and said that Lee Edwards had had an accident. I'll spare you the details and the timeline of that day, but from about 3.30 on Monday, for the rest of that afternoon and most of the night, Keith Frost and Caleb and I were at the hospital in Huntsville. Here I had just finished putting together a message talking about 
the importance of relationships, the importance of family. And then we receive this life-altering news that someone who maybe is one of the most loved people across the board in this church has had a serious injury. Church family, nothing else at that point mattered. It was almost as if time just stood still. The only thing that mattered to us at that moment was receiving positive news that he was going to be okay. A few hours earlier, we had a prayer time. We do this every day at 8.30 as a staff. Lee normally doesn't speak up at prayer time, but he did on Monday. And at 8.30, Debbie, he was so proud because right up there where Karen and David Duke are sitting, there was a row full of his family that he had been praying for that hadn't been to church in quite some time. And he was so excited and he just wanted to thank God for the fact that his family was coming to church. The next time I saw him, he was hooked up to a ventilator at Huntsville Hospital. Friends, how many times do we have to wait for something tragic to happen before we realign our lives around what's truly important? How many times have we neglected what is truly the most important thing in our life, our walk with our Savior, our relationship with our family, our relationships with our friends, because we get lost in the trivial and the meaningless things of life? My prayer is that in this passage that we've read about Jacob and Joseph and this reunion that's experienced through the events that we have experienced here this week, I pray that it would be a sweet reminder for us to value, for us to prioritize the greatest gift that God has given us next to our salvation, which is the gift of our family. I pray that this morning that God would have used our, our time of worship to serve it as a wake-up call. We're not promised tomorrow. And a wake-up call that may we not take one moment for granted. But more importantly, may we not take one single person whom God has placed in our life for granted. May the words of the Apostle Paul ring true in our lives this week. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And here's the key phrase, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of of the Lord is. Friends, life is short. Let's commit right now to not waste one more day, but to live our lives for eternity. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sweet reminders of grace 
that are filled all throughout your word. Lord, the reminder is that if we walk hand in hand with you, that you don't promise it'll be easy. You don't promise that there won't be difficulties and valleys along this journey of life, but you do promise that we have the assurance that you're right there with us. Lord, just as you promised Jacob that you would be with him as he traveled into Egypt, you have promised each and every one of us that have placed our hope and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. And God, when there are moments in our life that we, we don't know what the next day holds, we don't know what the next moment holds, we thank you that we know that you are still on your throne. Lord, you're not up in heaven wringing your hands thinking what happens next, but you are still God and you are still in control. For those here today, Lord, that have never placed their hope and trust in your Son as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day they confess their sins and they, they hold out their faith in you and that you would graciously come and you would save them. Lord, for those here who are walking with you, would you give us the grace? Would your Holy Spirit be so evident in our lives that our lives would be transparent before you that we would hear that still small voice behind us saying this is uh, the left or the right, that we would go in it, that we would follow you. We wouldn't live in our sin, that we would free ourselves of those entrapments that your grace has given us the freedom from and we would walk and the beauty of this life that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we love you. And we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.